no helps in those days. I mean, now you could just get on and Google, you know, how to get published or whatever. Didn't have a clue. So what I did was pick up one of these books. I think it must have been a signet. Looked inside the front cover and found an address. It was in Canada, so I thought, great. I just bundled up my whole manuscript with a cover letter that was about five lines long, more or less saying, I've written this, wondered if you'd be interested in publishing it. And off I sent it. Well, I had um, a letter back after just two weeks saying, well, sorry, this is just a distribution center. Someone there had read it and liked it and sent it on to New York. And then Hilary Ross, who was editing all the Signet Regencies at that time, she got it. And very soon afterwards, I had a call from her saying she liked the book and she loved it and she wanted to give me a two-book contract. That was the voice of Mary Balog, author of... Hundreds. 30 years <laughs> of uh, Regency romances from the Signet line, where she wrote Regency categories, through longer single title Regencies and historicals. Uh, you're about to hear a conversation about the early days of the Regency, and we hope you love it. This is Faded Mates, everyone. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. And I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and editor. We're really excited for you to hear about Mary and all of the things she has to say about historical, why it's so powerful, and why it feels like home to her. Well, welcome, Mary Bella, to Faded Mates. We are so thrilled to have you with us. Every once in a while, we read a book that one of us thinks is like one of the greatest books there is. And we did a deep dive episode on your short novel, A Matter of Class, because it is one of my very, very favorite romances um, because of the structure of it. And maybe we can get into that in a little bit. But um, welcome. We love we're so thrilled to have you. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So, Mary, one of the first questions we'd just love to hear is tell us about how you came to romance, either as a reader or a writer. Um, I always wanted to write from childhood on. I, I used to write long, long stories when I was a child, and that, that's what I said I wanted to be when I grew up. Uh, when you grow up, of course, you discover you have to eat. So um, <laughs> I became a teacher and then I got married and had a family. So it was I was in my early 30s by the time I thought, well, if I'm going to write it now or never. I had no idea what I wanted to write. Um, I, I, yes, I can remember how I decided on romance. I opened a cornflakes box once <laughs> in the morning and there was um, a complimentary copy of a harlequin romance in there what in a box of cereal (laughs) in a box of cereal it was called uh, no gentle possession by Anne mather Anne mather one of the greats so this was a this was a while tell us sort of give us a sense of when in the in time we're talking about this was uh back in the 50s no the 60s late 60s it would have been right Yes. Can you imagine if, I mean, somebody bring that back, please. I will buy any box of cereal with a romance novel in it. You know, I've been taught to sort of despise romance in general and certainly Harlequins. And I can remember holding the book over the garbage can. 
and thinking, oh, I've got it, and maybe I should just read it and see what this is all about. And I was absolutely enchanted and went on to read more. Um, so then I knew I wanted to write romance, and I tried writing a couple of contemporaries and fired them off to Harlequin, thinking this is easy, because <laughs> they were both rejected, as they should have been. Um, and then I read... I had a year off from teaching for a maternity leave, and I decided to read my way through a grade 11 reading list. I was teaching English. This was put out by the province. It was about six or seven pages long, single-spaced list of books. And one of the books on there was a Georgette Hare. Um, it was Frederica. Mm -hmm. I never read Georgette Hare, how she could have got by me. <laughs> In my youth and my 20s, I have no idea. But anyway, I um, I read this book and, oh, my gosh, I fell in love. I just had this you know, strong feeling of nostalgia as if this was mm. where I belonged as a person. Yeah. And uh, and then it, you know, it just struck me like a mallet to the head. This is what I should be writing. This is what I want to write. So we've talked about Hare before on the podcast. We've talked about her. Obviously, she's inspired a lot of us as writers. Yes. Um, prior to Hare, were you, did you read a lot of historical fiction or, you know, were you an Austin fan or a Bronte fan? I mean, had you come up through those kind of doyens of historicals? During my teens, I read just about every uh, classic there is. It amazes me now to look at a list of all the major classics and think, yeah, I read that, read that, read that, most of them. And most of them I read during my teens. So, yes, I came across Austin and Scots and Bron the Brontes. And but it was Hayer who really lit the fire. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah, because and it why? was more contemporary, perhaps. And, you know, I, I read this one book and I thought, oh, has she written anything else? <laughs> and Luckily for you, yes. And I just read through it. And when I came to the end of the list, I just felt bereft. I thought there's nothing else good to read in the world. So <laughs> uh, that was when I discovered that a lot of um, contemporary writers were writing these, these books too. So, and is that the point when you decided I'm going to start writing, I'm going to try my hand at writing Regency? Yes. Okay, yeah. and tell me a little bit. So at this point, we talked. We spoke to Catherine Coulter, who you know wrote Signet Number One, and so I'm sort of curious about how Regency and and when we talk about Regencies for the purposes of this conversation, I'm talking about initially those sort of category length little ones. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about how you came to that length to to Signet? What was going on in the world that brought that? genre together that coalesce that that genre you know it's hard to imagine a world without the internet <laughs> it's without true computers, uh, without any particular contact with the outside world except newspapers and television so I knew nothing about the genre I, I gradually discovered there were lots of books similar to Georgette Harris and, and started reading them but um, when I wrote my book, I just wrote my book. I wrote what I wanted to write. Yeah. And it was yeah. only after I'd finished writing it that I thought, okay, now what do I do with it? 
And there were no helps in those days. I mean, now you could just get on and Google, you know, how to get published or whatever. Right. Didn't have a clue. So what I did was pick up one of these books. I think it must have been a Signet. I'm not sure. Signet Regency. Um, Looked inside the front cover and found an address. It was in Canada. So I thought, great. I just bundled up my whole manuscript with a cover letter that was about five lines long, <laughs> more or less saying, I've written this, wondered if you'd be interested in publishing it. Um, and off I sent it. Well, I had um, a letter back after just two weeks saying, well, sorry, this is just a distribution center. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Did they send you your manuscript back? That's a no, lot of work. Someone <gasps> had read it no. and liked it. And sent it on to New York. And then Hilary Ross, who was editing all these signet regencies at that time, she got it. And very soon afterwards, I had a call from her. The phone call. Gosh. And she loved it. And she wanted to give me a two-book contract. Amazing. You know, we talk all the time about how, you know, you have to have a good book and you have to, you know, that's really all you can you can do and really, honestly, stories like this are proof that there is so much luck in it, too. Just oh, luck. the right person luck. picking it up at the right place and then choosing to mail it on. It's just it's amazing. amazing. It's amazing. amazing. What a story. Like the stars were aligned in the perfect oh, way. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I tell that story to a group of would-be writers or writers who haven't yet been published. You can almost see them turning purple in the face, you know. <laughs> How could anyone have that sort of luck? It's true. It makes it all just seem like a miracle (laughs) that any of us ever get read. It does. So, so then you're you're with Hillary at Signet, and you're you're with Hillary at Signet at the in the heyday. Absolutely. I I think Catherine Coulter was just maybe moving away into historicals, but I had read her Signet Mm -hmm. Regencies, and still there at the time were Barbara Hazard. Um, Edith Layton, oh my gosh, Joe Wolf, Mary Jo Putney, mm-hmm. and, and, and at this point, are you are you uh interacting with these other writers? Are you finding community with these other Regency writers, or are you just sort of in Saskatchewan doing your thing? Yes, yes. This was still, this was the time before, this was the early 80s. So this was um, in, um, what was I about to say? Anyway, no internet, no communication. And no, I didn't contact any of these people. But again, I was fortunate enough with my very first book to win the Romantic Times Best New Regency of the Year Award. And I went to New York. I took time off from school and I went to New York to the Romantic Times convention and, you know, to receive this award. And that's where I met all these, I couldn't believe it, all these goddesses. (laughs) All these people. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And then we we formed a pretty close group. But the only way we communicated was through snail mail. We wrote long, long letters to one another. Amazing. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Stephanie Rose, author of The Marriage Solution. 
Listen, as you can tell everyone, this is not just fake dating. This is going for putting a ring on it, which is instead of like, just like we should date for romance reasons, we need to get married for health insurance reasons. So, oh, so real. Right. So we have Julie and Landon have been best friends since they were in college for 20 years. So this is also seasoned romance for folks who like that. Um, they're in Vegas all of a sudden in the Bellagio, he drops down on one knee and proposes marriage because he's like, look, we've been friends forever. You can have my health insurance. You'll go back to New York. I'll go back to where I'm from. It'll just be literally a marriage of convenience. And what happens, though, is when the Elvis officiant says kiss <laughs> the bride, there a is a, a magic kiss. Yes! All of a sudden... Everything seems different between them, but she's still like, it's okay, I'm going to go back to New York until, Sarah, he is relocated. Oh, yeah, he is. He asks for that job. What is a man to do but move in with his, well, wife? Oh, she's right there, Jen. She has, she has one bed right in there. What are you going to do? So all of a sudden, our marriage of convenience becomes very inconvenient indeed. So if you would like to see more about this New York City, fake Vegas, sim and roll hero, best friends to lovers romance, you should check out The Marriage Solution. You can get The Marriage Solution right now in print or ebook or with a monthly subscription to Kindle Unlimited. Thanks to Stephanie Rose for sponsoring the episode. When I started writing i signed uh with carrie farron at avon mm -hmm. and carrie is famous for giving her authors a list of books to read when they sign on to the to the list to her her list and at the time i had read several of your big books <laughs> your sort of single title um obviously but she is a huge mary bella evangelist she is your biggest fan and um she gave me a list of books that really in a lot of ways i felt and i think she felt and this is why she gave them to me colored outside the lines in terms of the way we think about regencies i'm thinking about books like um secrets of the heart which uh you know where the heroine has a very traumatic past and, you know, has been like deeply ruined and that she keeps such secrets from her her husband or Wood Nymph, where, you know, the heroine is really unique and has sort of grown up a child of nature or um, a certain magic, which has that sort of love triangle-y feel. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about writing those books were you were you aware of of the idea that they were rule breaking in in a lot of ways or they were ground maybe not rule breaking but groundbreaking or maybe establishing sort of a broader space for romance or was it just sort of this is just how you write yes it's the latter but i think it was only when i started to get reviews especially from romantic times and they almost always used to start with this irritating... Uh-oh, <laughs> did I do it? Although she, although she breaks all the rules, Mary Ballard, da-da-da-da. reviews, but they always started with something like that. Mm. And I used to contact people, write to people, ask people, what are these rules? What are the rules? Okay, is there a list? <laughs> Where are the rules found? I was not rules? mailed the rules. They're at the distribution center. 
Yes, right. And what are the penalties for breaking these rules? No, I never. Nothing. Being put on a reading list. (laughs) I wrote regencies. You know, I set them in regency times and tried to make them authentic. Um, I wrote the right length. It was supposed to be 75,000 words. But apart from that, I've always just written what I want to write and what Mm -hmm. I feel is. Well, I also feel that you are a character writer. I mean, the amount of character work that goes into your books is just remarkable. I mean, this is just now me, Sarah, just telling you how much I love you. But the, <laughs> but I wonder, I do think, you know, we've talked a lot on the podcast about there, it feels often like there are two kinds of romance novels, right? There's obviously all romance novels are about character, but there's the character book and then the plot book. Yes. And you are so, you, it feels like when you enter your worlds, it's all character work. So can you talk about how you build a story in, in, with character does, I mean, obviously, it just feels like they come first to you and, you know, but how do you do that work as a writer? It's constant and continual. I, I start off with an idea of the two characters, of who they are. And then as I start writing the book, I, I have very little idea of plot. When people tell me I have ingenious plots, I think, <laughs> what? I don't have any plots at all. <laughs> but um, yes, I start with these characters as I think they are. And maybe after a few chapters, I I get to know something about one of the characters I didn't know before. Or, I, or, or they say or do something. And I think, well, that was unexpected. Where did that come from? Mm-hmm. And I keep having to stop and go back and read through and make changes. And each time I think I'm sort of deepening getting to know the characters. It's not enough to know about them. It's not enough just to make a list of their character traits and their past experiences and all the rest of it before I start. I can do that, but that's not enough. That that doesn't even get me halfway there. I just, um, I have to become the characters and I have to know them from the as we know ourselves, which isn't always very well. (laughs) I know them from the inside out and I have to keep digging and digging and digging until I feel I've got them, you know, I've got it. And then, of course, I have to make sure they can interact and build a relationship, which is a slightly different question. But yes, character is all in all to me. Plot is... Second. Not Who cares? <laughs> it's what happens while all this is going right. on. Right. Yes. So when you are building characters in a historical setting, yes. What what does that either allow you to do or challenge you in terms of like constraints or or opportunities? It's actually fascinating because um yes, they have to be true to their time. They can break rules, as people did, but there has to be a good, solid reason for it. It has to be believable. Um, I read historical novels sometimes in which the heroines in particular, perhaps, are behaving in a most unregency or un-Victorian way. Maybe they're swearing like troopers, you know, and um, I think, well, 
no, <laughs> be long. I think that that's the thing, no matter what they're doing or what they're saying or how they're feeling, they have to belong to their era. Um, it doesn't mean you're, you're restricted to all the rules and laws that apply to them. They can break those or challenge them, but it has to be believable. And it is a challenge. I don't notice it so much now because all my writing is done in an historical era, so the adjustments are sort of automatic. But I, I recognize it in other writers. In some cases, I think, yes, they've got it right. Even though this character is behaving quite differently from what you would expect a Regency character to to behave. Um, and other times, I think, no, 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 no. There's just, just it, absolutely no. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So, so yeah, it's, it's a challenge. It's an interesting challenge. And does that shift for you at all, depending on format, in the sense of it seems so strange now, right? When we talk about romance now to to writers who have come up over the last, say, decade, the shift from category to full length or from, you know, as you describe it and as, you know, Catherine talks about it, from Regency to historicals, right? Where the time frame doesn't change. You're still writing in the Regency, but in in our heads, those of us who know, the, who have a, a longstanding history with the genre or understand the history of the genre, those two things are different. And I wonder if you could speak to that shift. Do the books, are the books really different? Is there, is there something that is in single title historicals that is not in Regency? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I can remember when I first decided to move away from the categories to writing you know, mm -hmm. historicals, I had to because the uh, category Regents Remance was sort of dying and I saw the writing on the wall. Um, I just thought they must be quite different. So I started to come up with these sort of wild ideas for an historical and some of them were way out of the Regency. I was starting to go all over the place. And I can remember once I had um, a new editor um and I sent her a synopsis, something I cannot do. I, you know, I, I must have <laughs> to, to get a synopsis ready for her. I can't remember what historical era it was. Um, but I, you know, I'd gone through all these intricacies. I sent it to her and she phoned me and she said, this will not do it. You can't write this. I don't like it at all. And oh my gosh, my world has come to an end. <laughs> Said um, Mary, she said, someone who was it? I think it was Joan Johnson, the writer Joan Johnson. Sure. Had um, told her that she had to read my categories. This editor hadn't read my category regencies. And she said, I did. I read a few of them. And she said, Mary, this is what I want you to write for me. <laughs> right, but you got in your head. I, by the next morning, I had sent her a. Um, a synopsis, a sort of very vague base synopsis mm. for what was really my normal regencies that was just going to be expanded in length. She loved it. I wrote it. It became the book uh, More Than a Mistress. Okay. Um, and ever after that, I didn't think of the two things as different. The categories and what I write now to me are the same, except except in length. Length. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
So for me, it's it's no different. Mary, do you interact with your readers at all? I mean, is this something where romance has such a vibrant community? I think that it's been amplified by social media, but I think those of us who have been around for a long time know that there's ways in which we just really like feel like our favorite authors are kind of like our friends. In my case, actually my friend. Um, so is what's your what do you hear from readers about? Um, do you hear from readers? Yes, I don't get snail mail any longer. That's how it was <laughs> beginning. Um, but it, it's mainly through Facebook. I, it's the only social media platform I have. I refuse to join any of the others. It's time consuming as it is. So I hear from them that way and sometimes privately. They get my email address and writes to me privately. Um, and I write back. So this, there is some interaction. It's not huge, but... I imagine that many of your readers, I mean, because of everything that we've talked about relating to character, it feels like your readers, and I know this as one, there there is a real sense of belonging to Mary Baylog worlds. Um, and I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, I mean, not to kind of come back around to, to the historical piece, but it feels like... Um, Right now in the world, we're talking so much about how is historical still relevant. Um, but I literally walked from my television that is show that was showing the coronation <laughs> of King Charles to my desk to speak with you. You know, we see historicals. You know, there's now, of course, Bridgerton on television and Queen Charlotte's on television, and we are uh, we are still writing historicals. Readers are still coming to historicals. What is it about? historicals that is enduring for readers? I think people read romance in general because they want some, what's the word, certainty, some reassurance that, you know, at its base, all is well with the world and humanity, that there are such things as love and romance and um, commitment, marriage even. Um, and I think with historical romance, particularly the type I write, the character-driven ones, not the necessarily the swashbuckling, um, plot-driven ones, but there's the assurance that you, you can know and understand the world. You know how it works. You know how people behave, how they um, communicate with each other. You know that civility and good manners are going to be paramount to the world. Uh, there's a sort of certainty about it. And I think once people come into my world, for example, they 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 know what to expect and they know that things work the way they're supposed to work even if there is some rebellion and some conflict, which there has to be, obviously. But I think maybe it's that, yet in historicals, in history, I think we all have this um, basically wrong idea that, uh, you know, the olden days were so much better than modern days. Um, you know, I, I always think if I... If 
people actually lived in the Regency era, they probably would want to get out of there pretty fast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just for like pain relievers alone, I was right? Say antibiotics <laughs> are really a <laughs> toilet. Simple things, right? <laughs> yes, but uh, you know, I think I think people enjoy that feeling that they're slipping into a different world, which was so much better in in every imaginable way, almost than the world we're more familiar with. There's a fantasy to yeah. it. Yeah, there right? is. There is. There's Vaseline on the lens. There is, and yet it's it's still based upon real human nature and the sort of struggles um, that that humans face. But still, there's a certainty that it will turn out a certain way. Of course, there's always the certainty of a happy ending in romance, and that's it's probably its main appeal. You always know things are going to end happily, and that's not necessarily unrealistic. No, that's why we're here, right? (laughs) No, say more about that. That's so important. Sometimes when I am most in despair, perhaps I've been watching and listening to and reading about too much news and, and you get almost despairing about the state of the world. And then I pause and look around me at my quiet home, my quiet community and my family. And I think I'm happy. I'm at peace. Now, that doesn't mean that I can sort of put my head in the sand and say, well, because I'm at peace and I'm quiet, everything is fine with the world. Or, you know, you can't lose sympathy with people who are really suffering. But it it sort of grounds you into the fact that the world of the media is as unrealistic as the world of romance books. Mm. opposite extreme. More and more unrealistic in many ways, because the media only pick up on the terrible stories. Right. Right. They're they're selling a different kind of ending. It's like the miserably ever after, right? Terrible, terrible, terrible. But most of us think that's the real world. It's not any more than the world I'm living in or the world of romance is the real world. It's a mixture. Right. Well, I think that there's something I'm – Really interested in hearing you t- speak like this because I also think one of the hallmarks of a of your books and and that is one of our questions, but we'll get there. It, for me, is that there is a real honesty about the way the world works. I mean, as much as um, all the things that you've talked about, civility and kindness and gentility and and uh, and all of that is true in your books. There is also a sense. I mean, you've. You don't shy away from the horrors of war, from the impact of war on people. Um, your characters, like I said, have experienced trauma in many cases. And I wonder if you could speak to that piece of the writing, because appreciating that it's all character work, you could easily have you ha- you could have gone your entire career without tackling the impact of war on soldiers and their, you know, emotional state. It would have meant ignoring a, what was a very large part of the Regency. Of the Regency. <laughs> yes, Napoleonic Wars. Sure. I think it's, it's pretty much what I was just saying, you know, that the, the world isn't all romance and roses. Mm-hmm. It's not all trauma and and danger and violence. It's It's a mixture... And I think I like to take my characters through some of these horrors 
Um, not graphically, I, particularly mm -hmm. as my career has progressed, I've included less actually sort of on-camera violence. Uh, Secrets of the Heart, you mentioned, for example, it's a book I would never write these days. And it's a, no. book, a book I can't enjoy reading now, even mm. though I wrote it. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. it. It's just too dark. No, it's very graphic, yeah. yeah. Um, but I still, I think it, it's necessary to show how people can just rise above the most terrible things that have happened to them. Mm -hmm. um, in my Survivors uh, series, which takes seven characters who suffered variously from the Napoleonic Wars, but each of them individually can work through their traumas and the results of it to become whole, not, not physically whole necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the one who struggles with walking and thinks he can walk ends up in a wheelchair and he has to admit that's how he has to live. And the, the blind man that some readers always wanted me to, um, you know, allow him to regain his sight later in the series. Nope, he's blind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's learned to cope with it. But they have learned to cope with it and they've learned to... They've come to a rich life, not necessarily despite what's happened to them, but because of what's happened to them. It's all part and parcel of, of life. And mm -hmm. I'd rather not coat over those things entirely and give the impression that the Regency era was all just wonderful parties and balls and riding around in carriages mm -hmm. and, and whatnot. I... I think the Survivor series is probably the series that we hear most about from our listeners of, you know, right. when are you going to read read the Survivor series? And and we might. <laughs> Coming. Um, is that, in your experience, the one that you hear the most about? Is that a... No, the one I, the series I hear most about is the Bedouin series. The, mm, oh, of course. Like sure. books, particularly uh, Wolfric, Duke of Newcastle. Of course. Everybody's favorite character. <laughs> yes. So that's the one I hear most about still. So even can we talk about that one? Because uh, now, of course, you've said that, and obviously. You're like Wolfric. I mean, obviously. <laughs> Did you know? So we, we've talked to other writers who've written, you know, text templates say heroic templates or heroines who are templates and i'm always fascinated in hearing did you know when you were writing it that wolfric would land the way he did i didn't know he'd land the way he did i had no idea of his story until i came to write it uh, i was terrified by the time i came to write it because i knew reader expectations were so high right I just had this one chance to get it right mm -hmm. <laughs> I couldn't go back and say, oh, you don't like this one? Okay, I'll write another story. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, the real downside of writing a series. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I introduced him and the whole family, actually, into the book, um, hmm, A Summer to Remember. And they were just sort of invented as a sort of horrible, troublesome family that, um, you know, got in the way of the, the love between the hero and heroine. But as soon as I created them in that book, they tried to take it over. Mm -hmm. <laughs> having to unwind a few chapters and saying, no, no, this isn't your story. You know, you, you're just a peripheral, nasty mm -hmm. 
family. And, you know, I had to make this pact with them. You stay out of the way in this book and I'll give you your own books. <laughs> so I did. And, of course, Wolfric was at the head of that group, you know, this mm-hmm. old silver-eyed aristocrat. Yeah. <laughs> I, did, I did know at the start that he was going to be the culminating. Oh, everyone did. Everyone else did, though, Mary. <laughs> I didn't have a clue what I was going to do with him. <laughs> and so, well, but I mean, obviously, once you're in the story of the family, it's clear that he has to have his own book. But also, oh, yes. I imagine, yeah, readers must have just been clamoring. Oh, yes. Yes. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Megan Frampton, author of His Study in Scandal, which is a part of the School for Scoundrels series. I'm so, so over the moon about this premise. The heroine, Alexandra, Duchess of Chelmsworth, has lost her husband and she is really fine with it. (laughs) Uh, The only problem is that she now has to pretend to mourn her husband, who squandered her fortune and never bothered to give her the time of day, so terrible you know what i think should happen to that guy anyway she's like i'm beautiful i'm clever i'm brilliant i'm funny i have all of the qualities i'm going to cut up my morning gowns and take myself to this sex club that i heard of called the garden of heden i couldn't love anything more than i love that where i'm going to have anonymous pleasure with a man who tomorrow i will never think of again now if this was a contemporary (laughs) She would find out that tomorrow, you know, that's her new boss. Well, he's not her new boss. He might actually be worse than her new boss because the entire tone is suggesting that he would be the absolute perfect match for her currently unmarried stepdaughter. Whoa. Yeah. Yikes on bikes. So his wealth would save the family fortune. um, But he there is a problem. And it is that Theo has absolutely no interest in Alexandra's stepdaughter and all interest in Alexandra herself. So what is she to do? I think we're going to have to read this book to find out. It's going to work out okay, I think. Megan writes a great, fun, frothy book. Uh, Absolutely. You are going to tear through it. It is going to be a delight. And go get it right now. So his study in Scandal, of course, is available everywhere books are sold, including audio. Um, you can find out more about Megan. She has a substack, meganframpton.substack.com. She's on Twitter at Megan F or on Instagram at Megan Frampton Books. Thanks to Megan for sponsoring this week's episode of Faded Mates. Mary, can I return to something? And this is like Sarah probably saw this coming. So you were talking about um, the Survivor series. And we have talked extensively with many writers about um, in in contem- the contemporary romance of the 80s, many of the heroes were from Vietnam. Mm. And and we've talked a lot about, uh, like, kind of the transition from, like, those Vietnam heroes to, like, the romantic suspense heroes of now that are all, like, Navy SEALs and stuff. It's been a very interesting journey. When you think about writing, like, characters who are suffering from the Napoleonic Wars at a time when, you know, in your generation, in my parents' generation, so many men were coming back from Vietnam, especially in America – Obviously. Um, what do you see there being 
was there any sense of you like writing to sort of in a historical in that way as a an echo of that or or just no just it was really driven by history it was um it was only when readers started to comment on those mm. that i said and some of them said they they helped them a great deal because there'd been so much trauma with people they knew over the you know the various wars that um you know to see me writing about characters with PTSD well, I'd not never even thought of that term in connection with my characters and I started to think these books are having an impact upon people because it reflects what they've been through themselves in in a different way but I hadn't realized it until then right I was writing purely in a historical context I didn't really realize that I was writing generally about the effect war can have on on people. That's one of the things that we have found that we talk about is so magical about the genre. It's such a domestic genre in so many ways that we we don't necessarily know what story we're telling when we're telling the story right. because it's right. we're reflecting the world around us constantly. Um, but yeah, Jen is really. We both are, but Jen is really fascinated by the rise of military yes. heroes yes. post-war. Let's go back to your career. So you, you know, you wrote categories, uh, you wrote for Signet, you wrote for Hillary Ross. So I'm curious because as you, so as you made that shift, um, what was happening in your career? It was just sort of a question of that was the natural move. Yes, it was. Um I was particularly close with, I know I wrote a lot uh, with um, Barbara Hazard and Edith Layton. And they went out ahead of me, so to speak. That is, they they broke into historicals. And they, I think they made the, the mistake at the time of going all over the place. Suddenly they were writing totally different historical eras. And I think the danger of that is that you don't take your audience with you. Mm. Um, and because I, as I explained earlier, that's what, what I thought I would have to do when I was doing it myself. Right. Except that I had this very wise editor whom I disliked in many ways. I was very <laughs> glad to get to another publishing house, but she did me that enormous favor of pointing out to me that what I needed to be writing was what I'd always been writing. And so now, and now you're at Berkeley with, and who is your editor now? Uh, Claire Zion. Okay. Who we are having on the podcast uh, sometime very soon to talk about the history of, you know, Berkeley and all of that. So as you have progressed in your career, who are the people that you have built a community with? Are there other writers who you, who you are connected with, who, you know, inspire you, who keep you, you know, on the path? Someone I, I haven't mentioned is Joe Beverly. Oh, who was writing, you know, writing at the same time as the rest of us, but she wasn't a signet author. And that was always a, you know, a thorn in the side of the rest of us. I'd say, come on over to signet. <laughs> she was so good and such a vibrant personality. Yeah. You know, we, we used to get go and get together at conventions. We had a proper community, and she was part of our community, but she wasn't part of our publishing house. Were there other writers who you were reading and thinking, oh, 
they're doing really remarkable work. Was there anybody who, I mean, I, I, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, there's this sense often, you know, game recognizes game. You know, you, <laughs> yes. you yes. knew what you were doing and you had such a very clear view of the genre and what you wanted to do with it. And I wonder if there were other people who you were admiring along the way. I'm trying to think of actual names. I wish there were, but you're right. Sometimes you you can read books and enjoy them. Numerous books, numerous authors, and enjoy them. But suddenly there's one, and you think, mm-hmm. "Yes, oh, <laughs> they're doing a thing." Yeah, so, someone very recently that I have that feeling about have just discovered her books is Kate Claiborne. Oh yes. She's magnificent. She's an absolute yes, yes, yes. I see her name on the book, and unfortunately, she hasn't written terribly much yet. So, I, but uh, I, I wouldn't pass by one of her books. She just has it. Mm-hmm. Well, she is a great friend of ours, so well, she'll right. be thrilled to hear this. I know we'll be like, <laughs> yeah, no, she'll probably have to take to her bed upon hearing this, but it's fine. <laughs> No, I discovered her fairly, fairly recently. Well, no, she wrote love lettering, didn't she? Right. Mm-hmm. I read that a while ago and just absolutely thought it was wonderful, but it was sort of a one-off. It didn't occur to me to go and see what else she had written. Mm-hmm. But then there was a book that was chosen by Book of the Month Club, George Georgie Georgie all, all Along. along. Read that, and I suddenly realized this is the same one who wrote Love Lettering. <laughs> That's what else is written. <laughs> both of them were a major yes. One of the questions we really like to ask is I mean, you've talked a little bit about like the books, you know, the Bedouin series and Wolfric, and what you hear that readers think is their favorite. Do you have a book of yours that you are most proud of that you wish? You know, that you are like, no, this is this is my yes book that I have written. I think probably the book Longing. Okay. Which isn't terribly often mentioned by readers, but it's it's very historical. It's really based on historical incidents. It's set in Wales, my native country, in a coal mining country in South Wales, which is my own background. I grew up in Wales. So it's something something to which I'm terribly attached emotionally. I try to get across the, the reality of it. And um, yeah, I think that's my... I can understand perhaps why it's not as popular as some of my other books. It's different, although it's basically the same historical area. I, th- I think it's 1830s, which is a bit beyond the Regency, but basically the same. Um, I, and I think, personal. Yeah, yeah and personal. that emotional attachment to it. It's my Welsh book. It's- <laughs> <laughs> yes. What do you think are the hallmarks of a Mary Balog book? Like, what are, what are your readers going to get when they pick up one of your books? They're certainly going to get a story that it's not going to be um, swashbuckling is the word I tend to use. <laughs> it's not going to have a, a sort of fast and intricate plot. Um, so I, I can understand why some people don't like my books too much because they may find them very slow moving. Um, but you will get character, you'll get real in-depth study of character 
individual characters in the hero and heroine, but also how that character and character development is impacting their relationship. They have to make a relationship that somehow takes both of them fully into account. And um, I, I, I think you, you'll find my books, they end happily, but I think they end realistically. I never try to write uh, or try to convince readers that this is a happily ever after ending. It's a happy ending, but it's it's only going to remain happy as long as the characters keep working on themselves and keep working on the relationship. Um, so I think you're going to get strong doses of reality as, as it relates to character. There is a story that I have oft heard about you, about a speech that you gave somewhere and you sort of... Sh- surprised many people who were listening to you because you talked about the way you think about love. And I, as I understand it, you said something like, I don't, I don't necessarily believe that there is true love. Is that true? No. Okay. <laughs> I, it was, it's one of those things that you hear and you think, is that real? That doesn't seem real. <laughs> I can't think of anything I'm, I might have said that could be interpreted that way. This is intriguing. But when you talk about the realistic, I, I think, first of all, I think you hit it directly on the head with what the hallmark of your book is, your books are. There is a very realistic sense of love in your books. There is, it is not fantasy. It is real. Um, and anybody who's lived a life knows that that's sometimes it takes or it always takes work. So I wondered if it was somehow convoluted. That's where this story got tied up. I know sometimes I, I, I tell people that uh, I don't believe in the sort of love at first sight, electric mm. sparks as soon right. as you mm. touch one another. Yes, I, I believe that can happen. But to take that as a starting point and have the characters behave that way throughout, right. whenever they, they touch each other, there's this electrical connection. I think that's stupid. <laughs> Or at least it, it's, it's well, not. It's also good. not great. It can happen, but it's only. Right. It, it's not love. That's chemistry, right? Yeah. Chemistry. Mm-hmm. It's not love. If you want to bring those two characters together, you have to do the work. Yes. And I think that's what I, I very often call it. I call it a lazy way of writing a love story because that's not love. It can be a starting point. And I think it maybe has happened in a couple of my books, but it's only a starting point. Right. You have to write a love story and you've got to do right. the work. you got to do right. the work. Which sure. means it's never that easy, right? And it has to be tested. It can't be. Yeah. So it may be that sort of thing, perhaps. Yeah. People heard. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad we cleared it up here. <laughs> well, well and I, I, I certainly believe in loving all. <laughs> I would hope so, Mary. Well, for what it's worth, I never believed it. (laughs) Mary, one last question, which is um, when you are working now or like the things that you're you're still working on, like I'm always really curious, like in a long career, how do you keep yourself interested or is the process still the same? Is it still just like characters that come to you? How how do you sustain a long career writing romance? 
I think it's because I write character books. And if you think about people, there are no two people who are identical. Sometimes I'll get an idea for a hero or heroine and I'll start developing it. I think, oh, I've done this before. I've used this heroine before. I've used this hero before. And I think, no, I've used someone similar. But when you start delving into them, they're totally different from this other one. I think my books are always original in the sense that there are no two that are so similar. With, you know, with some writers, you, you get to recognize the hero and heroine. They're always the same. They're just in different circumstances. Um, with me, they're always different. And I think that's part of the interest to delve deep and discover that, yeah, this character that I thought at the beginning was so like the other character is actually a totally different person. And that's the joy of, of writing, so to bring this out, to each character is fresh. I, I freshly discover them. The people I thought I knew at the start but didn't. Um, so, yeah, I think I... And I love the Regency world. When I start writing and sink into that world, I think, ah, oh, home. <laughs> so, um, I, I, I was going to say, is there? Have you ever thought about writing contemporary? Not since the, since those first two books I ever wrote. No, I sometimes I remember once I had to write um, a time travel book, or a, a not book, novella, for an anthology. And so I combined the you know two characters who kept slipping back and forth from contemporary to Regency. And I tell you, when I was writing the contemporary parts for it, it was absolutely murder. <laughs> Hell. No one could see your face, like, but no. it sounds it looks terrible. <laughs> this sounds like a terrible idea. I didn't know. I didn't know. It's almost as if I'd never lived in this age. I don't know how they behaved or talked. What do you do what with a cell phone? The, the man was driving a car down from England to Wales, and I didn't even know what sort of car he would have been driving <laughs> or how long it would have taken him to drive there. Right. And when you I know got, exactly what kind of horses he would be <laughs> using. When I got back to the Regency part of the story, so that, oh, yeah, thank heaven. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. Oh, wonderful. Well, I'm so grateful that you have that you have been writing Regency for as long as you have. They are so inspiring and really magnificent. And I was really happy. Jen had not read A Matter of Class. When, I had not when we read it. Right. It was amazing. And I think it's so clever. And the structure of it is so clever. And I think that's what you have always brought to to me. And I think to this to the genre is a sense of you really can do anything with these books as long as the characters are true. Right, right. Um, so thank you for this. Thank you for this conversation and for your magnificent books. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been fun. And uh, I can't wait for the next one. Right. Well, that was great. I was so interested in hearing her talk about how Regency just has always been it for her. Yeah. I think this is the first right? person we've spoken to who is like, I never, ever considered anything else. Like Right, right. Well, and also, I was, I mean, I, right. I think there's a lot of 
ways, especially now that we see authors as being like, I can do anything, right? I can write paranormal, I can write historical, I can write contemporary. And to have, like, especially when she talked about, like, I don't know what kind of car anyone could possibly drive. (laughs) I've never even seen a car. What are cars, right? Like Lachlan. She's like Lachlan of, you know, from Hunger Like No Other only. That's a deep cut. Right? Um, And so I think that... I think it's fascinating to me, especially because um, I was very interested in like the her answer about like character, right? Like when I asked, like, what are the limits or and she was just like, they don't even occur to me anymore. I'm so steeped in writing the characters this way that she only Mm -hmm. like it sounds like notice it the one time she had to write a a time travel romance or whatever. So that's the part that's really fascinating is. Well, it's also interesting because I think she talks a lot about – she talked a lot about how, like, there's truth in Regency, right? And I think there were a couple of ways that she she tackled that and and she she talked about authenticity and truth. And some of them rung really true to me. Like, there is an an authenticity in Regency because it strips away so much of the trappings that we are left with this sort of – the pure character. Yes. Right? We're we're left with gentility and like civility and kindness and, you know, all the things that we sort of hope for in our fantasy world for today. What was interesting to me was that she framed her books as, you know, character work sort of thinky books versus swashbuckling historicals, right? Like there's the two are separate and they do different work. Um and it does feel like Mary Balog is in her world, right? Like she is, she has created the truth of the Balog universe, and that's really fascinating to me. Her heroes were in the swashbuckling world if they were in the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah, but she doesn't think about it that way. These are not war heroes like Elizabeth Hoyt war heroes. No, exactly. Like instead, it's like. You know, those were that was that was literally damaging, right? And so, I I don't know if that yeah. makes sense, right? So no, instead, it's like, like what that, is it? It's that authenticity, yes. right? Like, there's, I love. I mean, I I know you, I know you love it when we talk about to people about writing military yes. heroes, like heroes who've come who've returned from battle, right? Um, and I think the way that she thinks about authenticity of character like vis-a-vis trauma is really interesting i was really fascinated in hearing her say that um she would not write some of the books that she had written in her early career really so we didn't really dig deep on it but secrets of the heart uh dealt with a couple who met so the heroine is divorced her husband divorces her Mm -hmm. in the regency which is like virtually impossible um, because and she was, you know, she suffered an immense amount of abuse, mm-hmm. uh, but prior to marriage, um, and she never told her husband or her partner or the hero why. Mm. Um, and we see the trauma on page, oh, and interesting. it makes me think a lot about. You know, it was fascinating to hear her say, like, I wouldn't write that book anymore. Right. Like, that's not a book I would write again. And it goes back to what you and I have been talking about. I don't know if we've been doing it on the podcast or just in life. (laughs) You guys, Jen and I basically only talk about romance novels. So it could happen at any time. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that, Sarah. Um, No, there isn't. (laughs) About 
like the threading the needle of how you yes. write trauma. Right? right. Because trauma is so present in so many of our lives. Um, and I think one of the hallmarks of her books is that she never shies away from it. Yeah. Well, and I, I do think and I think that's where in this way I'm very much in alignment with her. Mm. Everyone deserves a happy ending. But for me as a reader, when a character is being traumatized on page, what I want for them first is healing. Like, Mm. you know what I mean? Like, right. And, you know, so it's like if it's like addiction or if it's right, like I'm kind of like, okay, so now I want you to be well. I want you to be able to take care of yourself first. Right. And then when you're in the place where you feel good about you, right? And I feel like that's a very, you know, romance novels are not long enough to show me that whole journey, right? Mm. So I am, as a reader, pretty okay and prefer, right, picking up with, I'm at the point where I, the trauma's in the past, right? I'm now just the person I am that was forged Mm -hmm. in the crucible of that. And now I figure out how to live my life as opposed to, I don't need to see it on page, right? So I think that's really, I I was also really fascinated by that, like looking back and saying, I wouldn't write that book now. That has to be the case, right? You write however many books she's written. And there are going to be ones that you think, well, I, I couldn't do that now. That's just a different, that's a different me. I'm a different writer now. Um, I was also, I mean, I loved hearing her talk about, I'm actually really glad I asked that question about at the end about like, is it true, this like legend about you? Because um, I loved hearing her talk about how work is, we have to believe as readers and she clearly has to believe as a writer that these characters are going to continue to work to love each other. And that's really interesting because I'm not sure there are that many writers who think about love that way on page. Like, I think a lot of us feel like we have to show the work on page. We have to show the trial so that we can see characters overcome and then thrive. And we can believe that thriving is their future. But um, I'm not sure that many of us go. And then when they've been married for 15 years, <laughs> they're going to have to work at like continuing to love each other. It, so, I, yeah, I was fascinated by sort of her, you know, of course, she was like, of course, I believe in love. But right. Like, I also believe that. And and I think this is what I find fascinating about romance. And it doesn't surprise me that a author who is so attuned to characters would would say something like that right because if you are a character person right as opposed to a plot person you're you know you're what you had sort of suggested then of course you would have to say people don't just like fit into each other like grooves right like you have to like there's that tension always of when you're with another person and I think that's what's really interesting. Like, of course, a person who comes to it through the lens of character would see that, like, two characters, even if we can see that, you know, they'll be great together. It's not it's not instant. Right. Well, and the evolution of character is so important in romance. Right. Like no no protagonist in romance begins the book and ends the book the same. So there is always this. It is entirely plausible that 
every character in romance ends the book and then in, you know, with another book would be a different character again. And so I do think there's, there's just something remarkable there. It's something that you don't, you don't come upon as much in, in romances. I think, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe you should, but I think a lot of us, as you pointed out in the conversation, like we think about it as happily ever after, meaning like when you close the last page, you don't have to worry about it ever again. And I don't, I don't know, but I think that that is a thing that she does really, really well. One of the things I've been thinking about is as we talk to so many different people, um, and this is maybe a question we should just like add to our stable of questions, right? I'm sure people have noticed, like, right, we have a standard set of things we're really curious about to hear from authors because we feel like we want to know their stories and like the history, their their experience of like the history of the genre is what does a ha- happily ever after mean to you or mean to your characters, mm. right? I'm putting that on the list right now. Because I do think it's it's very different the way she talked about what that means, Versus or, you know, or, you know, from and again, it's, I think it's different for readers than writers, obviously. But, you know, when I get to an end of the book where a happily ever after has been put on page, when is it that I don't buy it? Right. You know what I mean? Or mm-hmm. and so I think these are really interesting questions about about the genre itself. Um, and I think that there is a potential, obviously, for that to be expansive. That's going to be different for different people. Um, but mm-hmm. I was really, inter- I was really interested to hear her talk about that. It was fascinating. Um, can we talk about getting a romance novel in a cereal box? Uh, is that your dream? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody just break into my house and like slid open the bottom of the bottom, you know, the cap <laughs> of the you know raisin bran crunch and just shove a romance novel up in the side and make my day. <laughs> Listen, the best. Uh, I'm, and you know what? That's not the only time I've heard that story. Not the cereal. I haven't heard the cereal box story. But I bet it was right around that same time. Um. Okay. So I met BJ Daniels somewhere at Nora Roberts's bookstore once. And she told me a story about how she didn't really become a Western. You know, she's a huge Western right. star. We should have BJ on the podcast. But um. And she said she didn't really become a Western star until Harlequin decided to give one copy of her book to every person at, like, the Iowa State Fair. (laughs) Sure. And then, boom. Yeah, right. They gave out something like 35,000 copies of her book. And it just – talk about luck. Just so happened to, like, be hers. So, listen, Harlequin – we should really go back to that. Yeah. Well, and I think that's one of the things that... Put your books in Cheerios boxes. Right. I mean, I, I and I, I'm, I am really fascinated by... Because this book, the, there are so many times luck came up, right? I mean, the story about mm. sending it ex, sending it to the distribution center. And then someone just <laughs> Someone forwards it. it still to New York. I mean, the way that we as romance readers come across romance is always a fascinating story to me, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what is it that allowed you to get past the hardcore ingrained 
messaging that this is something shameful or embarrassing, right? And like, you know, I mean, I love the vision of her. Yeah. The hand over the garbage can, right? And an Ann Mather book. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, what a cool, what a cool story. I mean, I, I loved, I loved hearing about the way she thinks about her books. I, you know, she seems, I've, I've never met her before, but it, it feels, it feels when you read her books that you are reading the books by a writer's writer, by somebody who really just like thinks about the books. And that's, that's the vibe I got from this conversation. Yeah. 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 Um, obviously hearing names like Hillary Ross and, uh, and hair. I mean, yes, another again, person just right. drawn to hair. And interestingly, the last person we spoke to who talked about hair was uh, KJ Charles. And I think there is a similarity between Mary and KJ in, in a really interesting way. Um, you know, because of the way they come at the time period as being like historically, it is important to them that the history feel feels real. Feels accurate. Historical. Right. Feels, you know, when when I, for example, come at a come at a romance at writing historical, it's important to me that history feels modern. Right. And that's not the way she thinks. But that's – I'm not saying there's one – that one is better than the other. I'm saying, like, again, it's, like, two very clear paths. Uh, can we also talk about how we did not prompt her to say Kate Claiborne was great? Amazing. Right. But it doesn't surprise me either. Right. I mean, another character work, character work, right. Character work. And that's the thing that's also really fascinating, too, is, you know, I also found myself thinking sometimes when we ask that question, I like to like sort of predict in my mind, like, what do I think someone's going to say? Or if I am well versed enough in this author's work, sometimes I can see, right, like, oh, this person has definitely read so and so. Um it's also very interesting to me when a person who only writes historical, right, clearly is reading contemporary, but is yeah, never, she, right? she got it in Book of the Month Club, right? Like, sure. she she's not just reading contemporary, she's subscribing yes. to Book of the Month Club. Right. So I, I was really, yeah, that was really, that was really, really interesting. Cool. Yeah. Time to everybody get out their copies of Wolfric, I guess, and like hit that again, right? Yeah. Jen's never read it. So maybe we will do a deep dive. Maybe she'll be our first double, double dip. Now I know how people feel like, you know, we, we recommend a mountain of books over the course of a year. And even I am kind of like mm-hmm. writing down on the side, like, oh. Putting that on the list, putting that on yeah. the list, right? Well, I literally the second she was like, "No, the book I hear the most about is the Bedwin series." I was like, oh, "Of course, it's Wolf- it's Wolfric. Why didn't I say that?" <laughs> uh, anyway, listen, that was really fun. I mean, I love every one of these conversations. I love hearing people's stories. Um, you all know that I am very. I'm. I have a lot of love for. Mary Balog's books largely because they were, as I said on the podcast, like delivered to me as a reading list Um, because of character work. I'm sure because I am, I am the plot. I am a plot writer. So, you know, needing to pull me in that direction. Um, And so, yeah, just very cool. And 
these these conversations have a lot of joy. Were you ever going to make your list public? Do you still have it? The, the list from Carrie? Well, she used to write them in the margins when she would read my manuscripts. Go um, read this. This is a, tri- this. a tip for you, Jen. Oh, I do this editor. all the time. I yeah, give people homework. She used to go, she used to write, like, she would be reading along and then she would, like, circle a, she write, circle a thing and she would write, you know, think McNaught and then yeah. the name or, like, think Right. Think Balog and then like Wolfric, yeah. you know, so I don't so I don't have like a comprehensive list. I just have marginalia. Right. Right. So when I give my papers to <laughs> someone to the Yale <laughs> library, like a Vincent Virga, I don't know why the Yale library would want me. They've got Vincent Virga. <laughs> I have a feeling they'll go to Smith. That's fine. We all know. Smith can have them and somebody there in 500 years will go. <laughs> Look at this marginalia. Thanks for listening to Faded Mates, everyone. You can find us on Instagram at Faded Mates Pod, on Twitter at Faded Mates, on Tumblr at Faded Mates, and on Patreon. We would love for you to support our um, advertisers by buying their books and support uh, Mary Bellog by buying her books. So thanks, everyone. We can't wait to hear about your favorites, or maybe we'll just have like a Wolfric appreciation post. Have a great week, everyone.